and welcome to the 55th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, what a difference a few weeks make. In the last show, I made what I thought were extremely rash predictions for 2022 about the current pandemic. But already in the first few weeks of January, many have happened. Our country is now averaging around three-fourths of a million positive COVID-19 tests per day. And given the short supply of testing kits, that probably means the United States is experiencing three to four million daily new cases. Despite the lack of available testing and the fact that there's no system to record when people test positive after taking a swab at home, we've seen several days of over one million positive tests. Fortunately, with so many people vaccinated, the number of deaths hasn't risen nearly as rapidly as the number of cases, although it is now close to twice as high as it had been prior to Omicron. And as you would expect, almost all of those deaths have been either in unvaccinated individuals or in vaccinated people with medical problems, such as multiple chronic illnesses, individuals who are post-transplant and therefore on immunosuppression, or patients with cancer receiving chemotherapy. Phrased differently, if someone is fully vaccinated and boosted without a specific reason for having reduced immunity, their risk of dying from Omicron is extremely low. Unfortunately, that's less than 40% of Americans, despite the FDA recently approving the booster shot for anyone over the age of 12. In fact, approximately one third of Americans haven't yet received even the first two doses of vaccine that are necessary for protection. And as a result, thousands of Americans are dying needlessly each day with the total number of deaths from COVID-19 now close to 850,000. Listeners have wondered why Omicron is slightly less lethal than Delta, but yet is resulting in so many people being in hospitals and dying. The answer is the incredibly high transmissibility of the virus and the resulting massive number of cases. Even if the virus is, let's say one third less lethal, when three to four times as many people are sick, deaths will rise. And as a result, at present, at least 80% of staffed hospital beds in 24 states, including Maryland, Georgia, and Massachusetts are occupied. And in 18 states, including Alabama, Texas, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Missouri, at least 85% of ICU beds are full. Jeremy, the math is straightforward. Lower the chances of a single person who's infected needing hospitalization, 
but simultaneously increase the number of people infected to a far greater degree, and the total number of sick people will grow. The most recent data on Omicron indicate that people are contagious for approximately two days prior to infection, and that that contributes to the rapidity of viral spread, since obviously they don't know they as yet have the disease. Putting all the pieces together, what we're seeing is a tale of two populations. The vaccinated are becoming ill, but not very sick. In fact, because hospitals test every patient being admitted for any reason, we're seeing almost as many positive tests for people in hospitals for other reasons as for individuals coming to the facility with COVID-19 symptoms. But on the other hand, there's the unvaccinated who are at high risk of becoming very ill, needing a critical care bed and dying. And with Omicron being so transmissible, the number of unvaccinated individuals who become infected each day is much higher than we saw when Delta was the dominant variant. Schools have been hit hard with positive tests, both for students and teachers. Over 5,000 schools in the country have either shifted to remote learning or at least closed for one or more days recently. And across the country, stores, restaurants, and airlines are experiencing problems due to a lack of personnel. But nowhere is the problem as dire as in hospitals. There, the, the need for care has risen while the staffing shortages abound. Robbie, what do you make of the CDC's changing recommendations around quarantine and shortening it from 10 days to five days in the context of Omicron? Jeremy, it's utter chaos. You know, when we started this podcast, we weren't sure what to name it. We chose coronavirus the truth since you and I were both committed to giving listeners the most honest information available. And we've done that. Based on our success, if I had three words of advice for all elected and regulatory officials, they would be, tell the truth. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that they are capable of following that recommendation. If I were in one of the national leadership roles, I'd begin every communication with the facts. Having clarified them, I then provide the various ways that the information could be applied. And then I'd conclude with the specific choices that I've made. In this case, I'd say one, Omicron is very contagious, probably three to five times more than Delta and 10 times the original strain. And it's contagious one to two days before symptoms, but it appears to be minimally transmissible by five days after the symptoms begin. Second, I tell people that individuals who are vaccinated and boosted and without major chronic disease or being on medication to suppress their immune system, they're at limited risk of becoming severely ill, needing hospitalization or dying. Third, I'd point out that the current 10-day quarantine restrictions that were put in place for previous strains is having a major impact on the ability of businesses to provide services to people and on health facilities in their ability to deliver care given the, highly, the high transmissibility of this strain. And finally, I acknowledge that our nation has an insufficient number of testing kits to meet the needs of the population. Having provided the facts, I then pause and see if people or the media had any questions. 
Then I discussed the application issues based on these facts. Here, the list would be much longer. Should we have a single national policy at Omicron, or should we be different for people who are vaccinated versus those who are not? Is the risk of not having enough workers, particularly in hospitals, greater or less than the danger from the occasional nurse or respiratory therapist who is asymptomatic five days after developing symptoms, but still may be contagious? Should we design our policy primarily around hospital capacity, the threat to the unvaccinated, the need to return society towards normal for the greater good, or should it simply be focused on saving the most lives? The reality is there aren't right answers when it comes to the application of the science, because the conclusion depends on people's values, beliefs, and relative weighing of competing priorities. Having discussed the application questions, I'd again pause and see if there are any questions. Finally, I'd offer my view on what should get done. In this case, if shortening of the isolation period was being recommended, I'd tell the truth about why it was being done, and I'd acknowledge the downsides of the decision. I'd say the shortening of the time frame for isolation reflects the comparative risk for people who are vaccinated of dying versus the risk to their lives based on the education of their children, the impossibility of providing vital services to them, whether it's hospital workers, firefighters, or police. And I tell the truth that underlying the decision is the belief that those who remain unvaccinated make that choice for themselves, and we shouldn't have a national healthcare policy that penalizes everyone else for their decision. I'd add that my preference would be to recommend everyone be retested before returning to work in five days, but given the lack of testing capacity, it simply is not realistic now. Would this level of complete transparency make people happier? I don't know. Certainly the media will ask for additional clarity on why other countries have adequate testing capacity and the US doesn't. And they'll question the loss of life that will occur amongst the, the unvaccinated it would be an honest, less confusing, and more respectful presentation to the American populace. Instead of saying that omission of repeat negative testing is important, CDC officials tried to blame the test itself. They said that they were not recommending retesting as an essential step because the test is only 80 to 90% accurate. But everyone hearing them is asking, isn't that better than zero? knowledge. What everyone in the nation needs to know is that vaccination booster shots make a huge difference. And as a country, we are failing to do what we should. Data from Denmark shows that people who have been vaccinated and boosted and were living in a household where someone was infected with Omicron, they were less than half as likely to become sick as those who hadn't yet been boosted. And yet even among the vaccinated Americans, 60% of them have yet to receive a booster. As a country, we know what to do to control infection, keep society functioning and avoid overwhelming our hospitals. The problem is we just can't find a way to do it. Jeremy, you're an expert on politics. I've just given a long discussion about how I would approach it if I were an elected or regulatory official. 
Would you recommend that they fully disclose facts? Or do you think, based upon your expertise, that the admission of truth when it is negative would prove too harmful politically? Robbie, one of my biggest issues with politics is that, you know, as I've said before, both sides of the aisle spin things to make themselves look good and their opponents look bad. They either ignore or downplay stories that, you know, make their side look very bad. Um, and everyone knows that politicians are not necessarily the most honest people in the world. And you don't make it to the highest level of politics without playing that political game. I think our elected officials and career bureaucrats both need to remember they work for us, the American people. We voted them into office and our hard-earned tax dollars pay their salaries. I do believe that there are circumstances where the government shouldn't share things with the general public, such as sensitive military intelligence. That being said, when it comes to the pandemic, our nation is either scared of the virus or the economic situation or both. People are tired of the restrictions, impacts on their jobs, inflation, their child's education. Uh, people feel hopeless like this virus and craziness that it has caused will never end. Both our elected officials and career bureaucrats, as I said, work for us. If we are being drip fed the truth or have it spun through the media on either side of the aisle, it is only making it harder to find out what the truth actually is and making people lose faith in the government. It is almost like the boy who cried wolf. People do not know what or who to believe when. Like you said, Robbie, we need the truth, even if it is a hard to hear and difficult pill to swallow. Otherwise, there will be no faith in the CDC, vaccines, NIH, FDA, etc. People on both sides of the aisle are losing faith in many institutions right now. The public loss of trust and faith in these institutions will likely have a long-term negative effect on our nation. Robbie, can you expand on your comments about problems with the current rapid at-home test kits? As you know, Jeremy, there are two ways to diagnose a COVID infection. The first is a PCR test that must be done in a sophisticated laboratory and can take up to three days to complete. It detects infection even when there are low levels of virus. And then there are the at-home antigen-based tests, similar to drugstore sold pregnancy tests. They require higher viral loads to become positive, leading to some false negative results. It's not that the home diagnostic test is wrong. It's just that the sensitivity is lower compared to a PCR test. But at the same time, the results are available in minutes and the risk of transmission and severe disease from low numbers of viral particles is believed to be relatively small. If the situation a person faces is best addressed by knowing with 100% accuracy what was happening one to two days ago, get a PCR test. If it's good enough to know with 80, 90% accuracy what's happening right now, buy an antibody test. We shouldn't think of one test as good and the other as bad. They have different applications. If you want maximal certainty about whether a person is infected and you can wait 24 to 48 hours, use the PCR. If you want information on relative risk of transmissibility and desire the answer quickly, use an antigen-based test. You would think that as a nation, after two years of dealing with COVID-19, people would understand the need to make relative risk comparisons. But we're not there. Everything we do and every choice we make has risk. The question is how great and in what context. For a person with a transplant in place receiving immunotherapy or a person with cancer on chemotherapy, the answer is going to be different than for a healthy individual. 
Yet, as a nation, we continue to seek one-size-fits-all answers. Given how transmissible Omicron is, if you're going to spend time with an elderly grandparent who has multiple chronic diseases, get a rapid antigen test the day before or the morning of. That makes the most sense. And to that end, health insurance will now be required by the federal government to cover the cost of up to eight over-the-counter home tests per month. This was a decision made by the Health and Human Services Federal Agency. But of course, the overall national shortage of test kits continues. I want to point out for listeners that there is no limit on tests when the testing is recommended and ordered by a person's healthcare provider. The exception to this entire reimbursement process is seniors on traditional fee-for-service Medicare. They would not be eligible for reimbursement under this new rule. You know, one motivation for the government reimbursing the cost is how expensive these tests are today in the United States. A single test is priced around $12, as opposed to in other countries like France and Switzerland, where the cost is half. And given how relatively inexpensive these kits cost to manufacture, estimated by some to be as low as $1, had the federal government bought a few billion, they could be given to all Americans at no expense, but we didn't. And once again, the story in COVID-19, as it's been for the past two years, is we're often a dollar or actually billions of dollars short and a day, a month, or a year late. Rabbi, listeners wanted to know more about what's happening with vaccine mandates. What's the latest? The Supreme Court ruled last week that OSHA doesn't have the right to mandate vaccination for businesses with 100 or more employees. This was the policy that the Biden administration had sought to implement. But the Supreme Court also ruled that it was appropriate for hospitals and other medical sites, those that receive governmental funding through either Medicare or Medicaid, to require it for all healthcare workers. Some commentators have seen the ruling as a loss for the current president, while others have pointed out that this outcome was in inevitable and that the president's mandate was designed to motivate businesses to take the actions themselves quickly. And it is legal for businesses to do this, and many of them have done so. It's unclear whether the current federal ruling will drive those businesses that have not yet mandated vaccination to do so, or whether we will end the year sort of stuck where we are today relative to the current vaccination and booster numbers. In contrast to the United States, Quebec, Canada's second largest province, will be imposing financial penalties on all adult residents who refuse to be vaccinated. At present, about 10% of the people living in the Quebec province are unvaccinated, but they account for 50% of intensive care patients. And the cost of medical care is borne by the provincial government. In the minds of the elected officials, making people who choose not to be vaccinated responsible for some of the added costs, that's fair and appropriate. And this action is similar to various European nations, including Greece that fines unvaccinated individuals 100 euros a month, Austria that imposes a fine of 3,600 euros, and Italy that starting next month will fine unvaccinated residents over the age of 50 1,600 euros, 
if they refuse to get their doses. Robbie, several listeners wondered how effective immunity against Omicron is for people who have become infected and recovered. Jeremy, this is a very important issue. The most recent data indicates that the protection generated by infection isn't particularly strong. Of course, it is better than nothing, but it's not nearly as protective as following vaccination. What's clear from the data, both on infection and vaccination, is that a single exposure provides minimal protection and that the antibody levels generated don't persist. They can be boosted, but that requires subsequent vaccination. As such, you can think of having the disease as equivalent to a single dose or maybe even two of the vaccine, but far less than three vaccine doses and with Omicron's seeming ability to evade immunity, the difference between one and two or two and three is massive. More specifically, prior infection was 90% effective against Delta, but only 56% effective against Omicron. Although it was 88% effective against needing hospitalization or dying from this new variant. Robbie, what can you tell us about the possibility of a fourth shot? Jeremy, the data is becoming clear that two doses are not enough. And it's looking based upon the research from Israel that a booster shot, although initially effective, wanes in protection over the next four to five months. That doesn't mean that people aren't protected or that they're going to die from the disease because we have other aspects to our immunity like T and B cells, but antibodies are our body's first line of defense. And over time, we know that they decline. As you might expect, and the data show, the fourth shot does send the antibody levels upward again. As I mentioned in our start of the year episode, both Pfizer and Moderna are looking at testing a next generation vaccine specific to Omicron, and that might offer better and possibly longer protection. However, the process of manufacturing, testing, and getting approval is likely to take three to six months. In parallel, other options are being explored to better protect people from becoming infected, such as administering the vaccine nasally. This approach could theoretically maximize protection by priming the cells that will first come in contact with the virus. And several drug companies are working to develop a vaccine with broader immunity against the parts of the spike protein that seem to be relatively resistant to change so it's better to protect people against future variants. As we predicted in the last episode, the CDC has now approved the booster shot for adolescents, age 12 and up, five months after the second dose, recommended a third dose for immunocompromised kids, age five to 11, starting 28 days after their second dose, and they will no longer call two doses fully vaccinated. As we mentioned earlier in the show, only about a third of people have received the booster and the number coming for a fourth shot, therefore would be likely to be much lower. The one exception to all these recommendations are for people with poor immunity, secondary to multiple chronic diseases or following organ transplantation or chemotherapy for cancer. A fourth shot is now being recommended for them. Robbie, I heard that some nurses and other healthcare workers are being allowed to work despite testing positive for COVID-19. What's happening? What you heard was correct. And it reflects how many healthcare professionals 
are testing positive from Omicron and the negative impact keeping them away from work is having on the ability to provide care to patients. The Department of Public Health in California said that this policy was required due to critical staffing shortages. The idea is that if a nurse tests positive, but isn't symptomatic, he or she can safely care for a patient who also tests positive without risk to either the patient or the nurse. This approach didn't make sense before there was widely available vaccination and a high proportion of people at that time were developing COVID-19 and having life-threatening. This approach didn't make sense before there was vaccination. Prior to that, a high proportion of people with COVID-19 developed life-threatening symptoms. But with the current relatively minor impact of Omicron on people who are vaccinated and boosted, it's logical to keep the hospitals open but as you might imagine, several nursing unions are fighting this plan. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, despite the massive rise in, in the number of cases and the problems that Omicron has produced, there's much that's positive. First, we're seeing the first evidence that the current spike is abating. In South Africa, cases soared and then came crashing down. In Britain and parts of the U.S., particularly those that were hit the earliest in the wave of new cases, the numbers have peaked and are coming down. The reason scientists believe this is happening is that the rapid increase in cases infected so many people that the virus is now, in some areas, running out of vulnerable people to infect. Although the numbers will come down, that doesn't mean we'll be out of the woods. As long as there are so many unvaccinated individuals will see hospitalizations remain high. Because Omicron can infect people who are vaccinated, shortages of people, products, and services will persist. In many ways, we're back to where we started two years ago. We can't eliminate the virus. The best we can do is to flatten the curve so as to minimize the risk of overwhelming hospitals. The second piece of good news is data on why Omicron seems less lethal than Delta. Based on laboratory research, done primarily on mice and hamsters, this variant appears to be very effective at infecting cells in the nose, mouth, and throat, but far less effective at infecting cells in the lung compared to previous strains. And that's very good news, since it's the lung cell damage that leads to compromised breathing, the need for ventilators, and ultimately death. And this whole process makes biologic sense. As we've said in this podcast, from an evolutionary perspective, the virus flourishes when it infects people, not when it kills them. Before moving on, in this segment, we usually talk about an aspect of COVID-19 with a bit more human interest rather than just the medical science. And the saga of Novak Djokovic, the Serbian tennis star, is such a topic. As many know, he is considered to be the best tennis player in the world today. He's already won nine Australian Opens, which is one of the four Grand Slam titles in the world. Novak refused to be vaccinated and applied for a visa based on what he said was prior infection. Now, usually applications based on prior infection would be denied, but as the number one seed, usual doesn't always apply. When Novak first arrived in Australia, 
he was detained by immigration officials due to his lack of vaccination. On appeal, a judge reversed that decision, but then immigration officers reimposed it, including a three-year ban on entry. The question was whether a star is bigger than the health policies of a nation. Australia's highest courts, unlike in the US, concluded the greater good of all trumps even the number one seed. Novak was sent out of the country. Australian officials believe that whether to be vaccinated is Novak's choice, but they don't believe that that entitles him to play or even enter Australia. One last interesting story, an unexpected outcome from COVID-19, it's been a huge increase in requests for Botox. Sales of Botox have almost doubled since the pandemic began. They now surpass a billion dollars a year compared to 600 million before COVID-19. The combination of continued stress and people seeing themselves on Zoom most likely accounts for this surge. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. You've just published the first of what will be a series of articles in Breaking Healthcare's Rules. What did you write about? Jeremy, this series is about the outdated rules of medicine that negatively impact both doctors and patients. Some of the rules are written and changing them will require regulatory and legislative action. But it's the unwritten ones that are likely to be more difficult to change, but essential to evolve. Without doing so, the advances in medical practice will only happen through tiny baby steps and the difficulties will continue to grow faster than the improvements. And as we've seen, our nation's healthcare system will struggle. This particular first article is about how doctors are selected and evaluated. In the 20th century, if a doctor wanted to carry all of medical knowledge, it would take a 50 pound backpack. That's why the unwritten rule that deans and residency program directors used was that memory was the most vital skill a doctor could have. And the selection, teaching, and testing were designed to maximize and assess the, that ability. However, in the 21st century, access to information is easy and rapid using the smartphone that physicians carry in their pockets. What's needed now is for doctors to possess the next generation of skills, the ability to access data, apply it to ambiguous situations, and communicate the information to colleagues and patients most effectively. Rather than banning cell phones from examinations, I pointed out in the article the advantages of requiring applicants to have one, most closely replicating what will happen when they enter medical practice. Medical education should be looking a decade into the future rather than two decades into the past. Doing so will require we break dozens of the current rules. The series is likely to be six to eight articles long, which will only scratch the surface of what is needed and what is possible. On a different topic, the biggest story in healthcare this month outside of COVID-19 was the banning of out-of-network billing, often called surprise billing. This occurs when a patient goes to a hospital, a hospital that's included under their insurance, but then receives a bill for services provided by a doctor not included in the insurance company's provider network. Increasingly in ERs and operating rooms, doctors use this strategy to increase their income and pressure insurance companies to increase payments. And uncaring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, 
I talked about this strategy as being analogous to how armies put civilians, including children, into locations to serve as human shields to prevent the enemy from bombing the site and killing the innocent. As a result of congressional legislation, surprise billing as of January 1st this year is illegal and banned. Instead, the hospital and insurer will need to resolve the dispute over payments and submit the question to arbitration if there's no negotiated agreement. For the patient, the cost of being taken care of by a doctor not in the insurer's network will be identical to what would have been had the doctor been in network. Of course, the battles between providers and payers are likely to grow as, as a consequence of this new law, not disappear. The one exception to the law is the ambulance services. They are not included under the band, and listeners can expect those costs to be large when they need emergent care. Healthcare remains the number one reason families go bankrupt in the United States, but close to half Americans, one large unexpected medical bill is more than they can afford. Jeremy, how important is it to you as a patient that your doctor be technologically sophisticated? Robbie, honestly, until you ask me this, it's, it's something I really haven't thought about too much before. Uh, the ability to utilize technology for them to find out quick and up-to-date answers to questions around diagnosing or treating a condition I might have is pretty amazing and is something that likely saves many lives every year. Uh, utilizing the most modern technology to provide state-of-the-art care is something I believe consumers should be demanding from their health care. Uh, while it is important to have a doctor that is tech-savvy, it's still also very important to have a doctor that knows how to listen, be empathetic, and actually care about their patients as people. Robbie, based on the feedback we received from the last show, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, Omicron has magnified everything we knew previously about COVID-19. It's a lethal disease, but one for which the risk can be greatly minimized by vaccination and boosting. Nearly all of the people in ICUs and the ones who are dying are unvaccinated. And that's a disgrace, I believe, since modern science has found a way to protect all Americans and restore normalcy in our nation. It has led it to employees Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, pointed out recently that although 3,000 employees currently were testing positive for COVID-19, zero were hospitalized and none had died. Prior to imposing the United Airlines vaccine mandate, more than one United employee died each week from the virus. That's over 50 deaths a year that mandatory vaccination is preventing. In medicine, doctors often change practice when something is 5% better than an alternative approach. When the numbers are zero deaths versus 50, the debate should be over. The lack of a national mandate will mean that tens or even hundreds of thousands of Americans will die unnecessarily. That's not an opinion. That's simply the truth. Jeremy, there are times in history when fighting for freedom was necessary because there was no good alternative. World War II is such an example. 
But when it comes to the battle against Omicron, that's not the case. As we start the third year of COVID-19, the answer to how best to protect the health, the educational system, the business aspects of our country is clear. The imperative to be vaccinated shouldn't be a political question. It's just a scientific fact. Whether to keep schools open or closed, given the small risks that exist, whether to require masks or not, and whether to demand boosters, all these things can be debated as the science around COVID-19 progresses. But any listeners who remain unvaccinated are putting their lives at risk. They're endangering others and they're risking inflicting pain on those they love when they become sick and die. That's the scientific, medical, and societal reality. I'm hopeful in 2022, we will all do the right thing. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.